It's preaching in which this book is central. We've, we want to hear what this book has to say. The focus and the goal is to set forth the meaning of the scriptures. The focus and the goal isn't to hear about somebody's vacation. Okay? It isn't just to hear about somebody's latest idea. But we want to hear what God has said in the scriptures. And this is the priority that we have because we believe that it is absolutely crucial that we hear from God and not from man. And the beautiful thing is we believe that we can hear from God. Amen? That you can actually hear from God. That's an awesome thing. We can hear from God together. In fact, we believe that we can't survive unless we hear from God. The Bible makes it very clear that we don't live by bread alone, but by the hearing of the words of God. And we believe God has spoken to this world through Jesus Christ. And where do we find his revelation through Jesus Christ? In the scriptures, in this book that as Christians we believe is a supernatural book. Amen? That is, it's God-breathed. It's inspired. And so, expository preaching, the Bible is paramount. And then what does that look like in practice? Typically, what that looks like is that we work our way through books of the Bible together on Sunday mornings. Now, you don't always have to do that. You can go and read a passage in isolation and you can study it. But that typically looks like reading uh, entire books of the Bible together, seeking to understand not only verses but whole books. And expository preaching, therefore, requires more thinking on the part of us all, more effort in listening, right? and pondering what is being said here, and less being entertained. When churches don't place priority on the hearing of God's word, and they're content to just hear the ideas of preachers, they're content with people picking and choosing verses in the Bible and not touching other ones because they don't like those other ones, you know? And so they kind of have the appearance that they're preaching from the Bible, but they're not. When people are content with just hearing what they want to hear, and all they're really doing is listening to themselves, just an echo of themselves every Sunday morning, that's an extremely unhealthy and dangerous situation for a gathering or for a people to be in. And it's also ugly, because what happens is is then our gatherings become monologues. We come together, we sing, we pray, and then we talk to ourselves, and then we leave. So we do all the talking, and that's an ugly thing. But we don't want the other error, and that is we don't want to just gather on Sunday mornings and just hear from God, and then again just have a monologue. You know, we just come together, and God just talks and we leaves. A healthy gathering of believers should be a dialogue. It should involve us worshiping God with song, laying our petitions before him, and receiving from God himself his truth and his word, and then responding to his word with worship and prayer again. We shouldn't think that our worship ends with the singing ending or with our praying ending. Hearing is also worship. Do you believe that? It's also worship of God to listen to his word with reverence and to respond to his word. And his word informs our worship also in our singing, our praying. It energizes our response. Of course, when we come to church, we should also gather to hear from one another and to edify one another as brothers and sisters. But it does seem like the element that's 
typically neglected in Christian gatherings or in gatherings that are called Christian is the hearing of the Word of God. There's very little expository preaching and people that gatherings that take seriously the, the exposition of God's Word. And that's the foundation of everything else. If we stop hearing from, God's, from God, everything else then um, is affected by that. And so that's why it is a priority at All Saints Church. And I hope that as long as All Saints Church remains, I don't know how long it will, um, and even if Brad or I were to you know, die and the church remains, that that would remain the priority at this gathering would be the hearing of God's word. And with that being said, having finished our series in Titus, we're going to begin a new series here on Sunday mornings. And I'm very excited for this series. We're going to be going through and studying the Gospel of John. And this morning, I'd just like to provide an introduction to the Gospel of John. There is absolutely so much to say about this book, way too much to say in one Sunday morning. I cannot possibly introduce this book the way that I would like to, but um, I'm just going to introduce it as best I can in the short time that we, ha- that we can. So I'm going to first say some introductory things about the Gospel of John, and then I'll say a little bit about the author, John himself, and then last I'll share one of the most interesting and important features of the Gospel of John. Now, the Gospel of John is not just any book in the Bible, okay? How many of you have picked that up in your reading of the Bible, that there's something very special about the Gospel of John? All the books of the Bible are inspired, but that doesn't mean that all the books of the Bible are on the same level. That is, every book of the Bible serves a particular and distinct role within the Bible, right? There's different roles. So the role of the Gospel of John is not necessarily the same role as the book of Isaiah or Obadiah or Exodus, right? So it's all inspired, but there's different roles that each play. Some books of the Bible are introductory. They introduce revelation to us. They don't give us the fullness of the revelation. They just introduce it. Introduce it. Some books of the Bible develop revelation. Some support revelation. And some are the culmination of revelation. What God is seeking to say, he's been building a foundation, and now he's, he's reached the peak of what he wants to say. You can kind of think of the theology in the Bible like a Gothic cathedral. There's this one structure, but there's all these different parts that that serve different roles. There's the foundation, there's the walls, there's the flying buttresses, there's the steeple. Different parts serving different functions to make up one whole. And so it is with the books of the Bible. There's this theology in the Bible and different parts serve different roles. What is the role that the Gospel of John serves? Does it serve a foundational role, do you think? Is it introductory, do you think? You know, in this, in this Gothic cathedral of theology, is the Gospel of John on the bottom, would you say? Or do you think that there needs to be other things on the bottom in order for us to understand the Gospel of John, right? And that's, that's what I'm arguing this morning, is the Gospel of John is not foundational, nor is it playing a supportive role or even a developing role. But the Gospel of John, as I understand it, and ask yourself what you think, is playing a culminating role. 
That is, we reach a high water mark in Scripture with the Gospel of John. I'd also include with all of John's writings. We reach a high water mark of revelation in Scripture. The Gospel of John is like the steeple on the cathedral. And it's not that other books in the Bible and other places in Scripture are not also culminating revelation, that, it, that don't also contribute and ornament this steeple. But without a doubt, the Gospel of John is surely the steeple. It's, I like to call it the Mount Everest of theology. That is, you know, if you're a climber, you climb all sorts of mountains. But once you've climbed Mount Everest, you've basically climbed the tallest mountain in the world, right? Everything else is kind of below that. And I think when you've grasped the message and the revelation in the Gospel of John, then you've basically climbed Mount Everest. And I don't think any of us are actually on the top of Mount Everest yet. It's been called the profoundest book in the world. I think if we as Christians who are familiar with the Gospel of John at all would reflect on that, we would agree. That it is, in fact, the profoundest book in the world. Go online, Google all the classic books. You'll not find a book as profound as the Gospel of John. If I were to be on a desert island, this is, this is honest, and I had to choose one book of the Bible to have, and I could, if I could only have one, it would be the Gospel of John. If that was the book I had to take, you should ask yourself, what would you take? And why is that? Why is the Gospel of John culminating? Why is it the profoundest book in the world? Why would I have it on a desert island and not, say, the book of Romans or something? And the reason is this. Because in the Gospel of John, we have a unique, or the unique, one-of-a-kind, consummate revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Is that true or false? Would you say, right? We do have a unique revelation of the Son of God, don't we, in the Gospel of John. And Jesus himself tells us that when you see me and when you hear me, you're actually seeing and hearing God. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to understand the Father, then you need to see me. And he said to Philip at the end, uh, right before his crucifixion, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus says, I've been with you all this time. And what are you asking me that for? Don't you realize that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? And in the Gospel of John, we have the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is the revelation of God. And I can't think of anything else I'd want to do on a desert island than reflect upon the life and the teachings and the actions of Jesus as they're uniquely displayed in the Gospel of John, which is revealing the Father himself. Amen? It's long been recognized for millennia since the Gospel of John was written, that this Gospel, the fourth Gospel, stands out among the Gospels as providing a unique and profoundly deeper revelation of Jesus than is found in the other three. Would you, have you noticed that? Origen, in the third century, he was a Christian scholar, and he wrote the first uh, commentary that is within the Christian tradition on the Gospel of John that we possess, that we have. And here's what he says. We may make bold to say that the Gospels, the four Gospels, are the first fruits of all the Scriptures, but that of the, of the Gospels, 
That of John is the first fruits. And by first fruits, he just means it's the sacred part. It's the holiest part. He says the gospels are the holiest part of the whole Bible. And of the gospels, the gospel of John is the holiest part of the four gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. Have you ever heard of that before? They're called the synoptic gospels. What that means, synoptic, means uh, a, a seeing together. That is, Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us a very similar picture of Jesus. So similar, in fact, that they are lumped together. Scholars say that they actually are de- dependent on one another. They, they, they follow the same structure, and they're looking at Jesus in a very similar way. Not so the Gospel of John. Have you ever been reading a story in the Gospels, and, and then you go to the footnotes to see where else is this story told in the other Gospels, right? You want to reference the, the parallels? Well, you'll often find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, whichever one you're reading, let's say you're reading Matthew, and you read a, a healing miracle or an exorcism or a teaching or a parable, and you go to your references, and you'll often say, this is found in Mark, this is found in Luke. Well, where is it in John? It's not in John. You'll often find that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are paralleled. The general flow of the story is the same. The, the, the events of the books are the same. The dialogues are the, are the same. And you can, as I said, flip to the different parallels in, in those three Gospels to read it all together, but not in John. Scholars have estimated that about 8% of the Gospel of John is similar to the Synoptic Gospels. 8%. That means 92% of the Gospel of John is new material not found in the synoptics at all, okay? 92%. We're reading a very different book than the synoptics. Even though uh, the, cruci- the trial and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus are recorded in the Gospel of John, how could it not be, of course, recorded if you were writing about Jesus? But even those portrayals are very different. The dialogues are different. You don't get all the same stuff. You don't get all the same happenings in, those, in, in the retelling of, John, of, uh, of the crucifixion in John than you do in the synoptics. Not that, and this, I'm very, uh, it's very important that I mention this, not that in any way the synoptic gospels in John contradict one another, and there's been so much scholarship that has gone into this, and the verdict really is that they don't contradict, but they complement one another, and they supplement one another. That is, uh, the synoptics make sense of a lot of things in John, and John makes sense of a lot of things in the synoptics. So they're not contradictory, but complementary. And here are some differences, and here's perhaps the first difference that should be noted that explains perhaps why they're so different overall. Number one, the setting and the structure of the Gospel of John is different than the Synoptic Gospels. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's well known that the, that the ministry of Jesus, and it was about three years. Where, well, let me think about it. Where did Jesus spend the, the lion's share of his time in his three years of ministry? Where did he spend it? Do you remember? Was it in Jerusalem? No. He went to Jerusalem for the feasts that he was supposed to go to Jerusalem for, right? There was three feasts that that, uh, all the men of Israel were supposed to go to Jerusalem, and he would go, but where would he spend most of his time? In Galilee. He spent 
all of his time in Galilee, essentially, except for like little retreats and excursions in different places. The lion's share of his time was in Galilee, which is basically the, you know, the backwater place of, of Israel, not the religious center of Israel. That's very important. In fact, the religious center of Israel was Jerusalem. That's where the Pharisees had their headquarters. That's where, you know, that's where all of the, the important religious stuff was happening in Israel. And in fact, the Jews in Jerusalem considered the Galileans to be kind of, um, you know, yeah, there's, there's faithful people up there, but by and large, they're just, they're kind of out of the range of good religion. And they're mixing a lot with the Gentiles, and you're not really supposed to do that because that was called Galilee of the Gentiles. Lots of Gentiles were in that area as well. But Jesus spent most of his three years ministering in Galilee. And guess what? The synoptic gospels spend almost all of the time looking at Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Now, what about John? What is the setting of the gospel of John? All... Almost the entire Gospel of John is set in Jerusalem. That is that John is looking at Jesus in a unique way. He's not seeking to paint the whole picture of Jesus and say, you know, what was Jesus' whole ministry like? Let me give you the broad overview of the whole thing. He's just focusing primarily on Jesus in Jerusalem, arguing with the religious leaders of his day. The, he's, this is Jesus taking on the, the Central nervous, religious nervous system of Israel, okay? So in the Gospel of John, Jesus is primarily in Jerusalem. That explains the difference in uh, the content. Why are they so different? Did John not know about all this other stuff? Of course he did. He's just focusing on a specific aspect of Jesus' life. The content is therefore different. In the Gospel of John, we have many things that aren't found in the synoptics at all. We have this, um, this amazing prologue that introduces the Gospel, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. There's nothing like that in the synoptics. The synoptics start, you know... At such a time in history, the angel came to Mary and said, you're going to have a son. You know, that's all true and important. John's looking at it from a little bit of a different perspective. He's looking at it from a, a profounder, more theological perspective, not just a historical perspective, right? It's interesting that the Gospel of John contains the I am statements of Jesus. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door for the sheep. All these things are not included in the synoptics. Interesting. There are various signs that John records that Jesus performed that are not recorded in the synoptics. Turning water into wine, raising Lazarus from the dead. In fact, uh, there is only one miracle, public miracle that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John that's recorded in the synopsis. There's only one miracle, besides the resurrection, of course, that they all have in common. That's the feeding of the 5,000. That's the only miracle, public miracle, that Jesus performs that they all share. Everything else is different, okay? The Gospel of John shares no exorcisms whatsoever. But this miracle 
the feeding of the 5,000 is shown, showing, of course, its supreme importance. And it's interesting that it's John who explains the theological significance of that miracle, not the synoptics. The synoptics merely say it happened. John explains what it's all about. Very interesting. John does not include any parables, which is such a major feature of the synoptics, right? Like most, of, so much of Jesus' teaching in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is parables. John includes none. John does not include the Sermon on the Mount, which all the other synoptics touch on. John does not include the Last Supper. John doesn't say, this is my body, this is my blood. He doesn't, he, John does not record Jesus instituting the, the Last Supper. John does not even record the transfiguration of Jesus. We might think, what an important thing, you know? And isn't John all about revealing the, you know, the majesty of Jesus Christ? How could he not include the transfiguration? These are facts that have to make us stop and think about what John's purpose is, what he's getting at. What John does include, however, is this very long upper room discourse that Jesus gives to the disciples at the time of the Last Supper, which the synoptics don't give. So the synoptics say he instituted the Last Supper, but they don't say anything about his long discourse on the Holy Spirit and on how the world will hate you and his high priestly prayer to the Father. So we ask, how does John omit all all of these things? And we need to remember that according to church tradition, which we have no reason to doubt, John wrote his gospel last in the 80s, sometime, 80s AD. And of course, John believed in all the things that the synoptics say Jesus did in Galilee. But that John has a particular and different purpose and method in mind than the synoptics have. And you know, we read this passage. Let's look at it again. John explicitly says here in his purpose, There are many things that Jesus did that I did not record in this book. So John is aware of lots of things, probably lots of things that he's totally blown away and amazed by. But he says, they are not written in this book in verse 31, but these have been written. That is, here we're seeing that John is selecting carefully what to include. And here's his purpose. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John has selected very carefully to accomplish this purpose. And here's a point that I'd like to hammer into us at the beginning of our series, and I'd like you to keep this in mind throughout. That it, this is the point, that while the synoptic gospels provide an overview of the whole story of Jesus, that is, their goal is to sample everything, They want to give you the context of the story, the historical context, the movements of Jesus, where he went, what are the miracles that he did, just to give you a sampling of that, give you a sampling of all his teachings. While the synoptic gospels are very broad to give us the sampling of the whole ministry of Jesus, and by the way, that's exactly what Luke says in Luke 1 his purpose is. He says he wants to lay out accurately all that happened. Not so the gospel of John. John, on the other hand, is highly concentrated and specific. And he focuses only on the unique and essential and consummate message of Jesus. John has only one point, okay? It is not to tell you the whole story of what happened. 
It is one point, and that is to reveal Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and to get right to the crux of the matter. What makes Jesus, Jesus, okay? What makes him different? What makes him, uh, what gives, what is the source of the conflict between Jesus and Israel and the religion of Israel in his day? What is the crucial theological significance of all that happened. And he wants especially to point out the spiritual conflict between the light and the darkness. John has one point. Okay, I could tell you all the history about Jesus. What you need to know, what I really want you to know, is that Jesus came into the world as the light of the world. Okay? Jesus Christ came into the world to reveal to us who God is. God is a particular way. And Jesus came to show us the Father. And he came into the world as light. And everything else is darkness. All the religion of Israel is darkness. All the way that they were thinking is dark. And it clashed. They did not understand it. They hated him for what he was saying. But to those who receive him as the Son of God who reveals the Father, to those who embrace that truth and that light, they become the children of God and have life and are delivered from the death that all the world is in by being separated from God. That's what John is seeking to do in his gospel. Or in other words, while the synoptics give us a fuller picture of Jesus, John gives us a deeper picture of Jesus. While the synoptics are more historically satisfying, John is more theologically satisfying. Amen? Have you noticed that? In your own reading, am I out to lunch here? (laughs) Or have you noticed that? If you want to know, brothers and sisters, what is the heart of Jesus? What is the heart of his person? What is the heart of his message? What is it all about? Then you read the Gospel of John. Now what I'm saying is not novel. As I said, it's been recognized for millennia. Here's some quotes. I'm going to just briefly scan history here on the thinking that has gone into the Gospel of John. Clement of Alexandria very early said this, but that John, last of all, conscious that the outward facts had been set forth in the Gospels, was urged on by his disciples and divinely moved by the Spirit to compose a spiritual gospel. That's an interesting statement. Origen writes that the Gospel of John reveals Jesus as he is. Jumping ahead, John Calvin, in his preface to his commentary on John, says that as all of them, all the Gospels, had the same object in view to point out Christ, the three former exhibit his body, if we may be permitted to use the expression, but John exhibits his soul. Wow, what a statement. And jumping ahead even further to the last century, William Temple comments, the synoptists may give us something more like a perfect photograph, but St. John gives us the more perfect portrait. You know what the difference between a photograph and a portrait is? You know, the photograph is snap and there it is, looks exactly like you. But a portrait, the artist draws out depth in you, right? Draws out personality, draws out um, what makes you who you are through his skill of painting. 
And Temple goes on to say, the mind of Jesus himself was what the fourth gospel disclosed. So all these scholars agree that in the gospel of John, we have the deepest and innermost revelation of Jesus and therefore of God. Jesus comes from the bosom of the Father. John lays on the bosom of Jesus and he reveals to us the essence of who Jesus is. There's my brief introduction to the Gospel of John. And the last thing we'll do this morning is I'd just like to say a few words about John the author and then point out one very important feature of this Gospel. So John the author. The original manuscript of the Gospel of John had no title. So in your Bibles it says the Gospel according to John. And on every top of the page you'll have John and the chapter. None of that was in the original manuscript. The original manuscript was anonymous, and that's actually true of all the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were all published anonymously. F.F. F. Bruce, a new, he was a brilliant New Testament scholar, he says this, It is noteworthy that while the four canonical Gospels could afford to be published anonymously, the apocryphal Gospels, which began to appear from the mid-2nd century onwards, claimed falsely to be written by apostles or other persons associated with the Lord. It's interesting. He says, the original Gospels could afford to be published anonymously. But later, when people started writing these false Gospels, they always had to say and title it, this is the Gospel of Peter. This is the Gospel of Thomas. This is the Gospel, the hidden Gospel of Mary. Right? They always had to tie it in to some person that was with the Lord. But not so the original Gospels. Yet the early Christians were never in doubt as to who authored these Gospels. In fact, the interesting thing is, as early as we know, the four Gospels were always bound together just like we have them, okay? Not in the same order necessarily, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were were actually published in a book together as early as we know. They were immediately recognized as authoritative. They were actually given titles immediately by the church. And it's interesting that, uh, you know what a harmony is of the Gospels? So harmony is not just when you put the Gospels together in one book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but when you merge them together as one book and you try to make it just one book without any um, you know, separation at all, just try to combine them. That was actually done uh, very soon <laughs> called the Diatessaron by Tatian. He actually tried to harmonize the four Gospels together. That shows the authority that these Gospels had. So they were anonymous, not because the church found them under a rock and was like, who wrote this? You know, The early church didn't find it in some library and say, who wrote this? But they were anonymous because the authors intentionally published them anonymously. The authors were not drawing attention to themselves when they published these Gospels. That was not their purpose. And even, you'll notice, that when the authors of these Gospels had to mention themselves, they mentioned themselves in a very subtle, brief, and understated kind of way. Think about how John mentions himself in the Gospel of John, right? The disciple whom Jesus loved, or the other disciple, or that disciple. He'll just briefly mention himself. He won't even name himself because his purpose isn't to draw attention to himself. And Bruce goes on to say, John's recurring designation as the disciple whom Jesus loved 
implies a deliberate avoidance of his personal name. Here we have a beautiful example for all Christians. What is our purpose when we tell people about Jesus? Okay. Is our purpose to draw attention to ourselves? Look how amazing I am. I knew Jesus. I know Jesus. I'm, I'm writing a gospel of Jesus. I'm preaching Jesus. I'm handing you a tract. Me. Or is our purpose to point to Jesus and not to ourselves? You know, So many books are published these days about Jesus. And the front cover is some glamour photo right, of the author. All about Jesus. Bam, the author, me. (laughs) That's not the spirit of the Gospels. Who was John? A Jew from Galilee and a fisherman, we're told. That does not necessarily mean that he was poor. We often say that they were poor and uneducated fishermen. That's actually not true. In fact, um, if you read carefully about the fishermen in the New Testament, they weren't necessarily poor at all. Uh, Some of the details in the Gospels reveal that Peter and John and their families were actually in business together. They owned boats and hired servants to fish. And somehow John knew the high priest and he was able to get access to um, to his house when Jesus was taken into his house for trial. So this isn't some obscure, poor, uneducated guy out of the blue. He, just because he was a fisherman doesn't mean he was like that. And he was chosen by Jesus to be an apostle, and not only one of the twelve, but one of the inner three. John is known as the apostle of love throughout history, but it appears that he wasn't always so loving. Have you noticed that? Now, in Mark chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus names John and James, their brothers, the sons of thunder. We don't really know what that means. You know, what, is, what does Jesus mean that he's the son? They, these guys are the sons of thunder. I'm not sure. But here's what we do know about John. In Luke chapter 9, verse 54, when a Samaritan village would not receive Jesus, John suggested to Jesus that they call down fire from heaven and destroy that village. John did. Hey, let's kill these people, okay? They deserve death for not receiving you. Let's, let's do an Elijah thing and burn them to a crisp. And Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of, right? That was John. Interesting. In Luke 9.49, there was a guy who was casting out demons in Jesus' name. It was John who tried to stop him. And he tells Jesus... Jesus, we saw a guy trying to cast out uh, demons in your name. We sought to stop him. And Jesus had to correct him and say, hey, if he's with us, he's not against us, right? And so John, we get a bit of his personality that, hey, you're not hanging out with us. You're not in our group, so you can't really be be a disciple of Jesus. So you get a sense of his personality there. In Mark chapter 10, verse 35 and 45, here's another embarrassing story uh, about John. (laughs) James and John came to Jesus with their mother and asked to be exalted to Christ's right hand in glory, right? Now that ticked off all the other disciples. So John made everybody mad in the Jesus group because he says, hey, you know, let us be your chief uh, disciples, basically. Let us be 
in glory your right-hand men. And so we see there was an ambitious spirit in him, certainly not a loving one in all three of these examples. It doesn't seem like John was a super loving guy, thinking about others, right? And yet here's the amazing thing. This same man wrote later in his life, we have come to know and have believed in the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Same guy, okay? Same guy who's kind of putting himself ahead, wanting to destroy other people, you know, wanting to stop other people who are serving Jesus. He now makes this beautiful statement about the love of God. Something changed in the life of John, okay? That turned this son of thunder, whatever that means, into what we call and know the apostle of love. What was it that made him change? Was it willpower? Was he just, I'm going to stop being the kind of guy that I am and I'm going to start being loving? Was it medication? You know? Was it shock therapy? What was it that changed him? And the answer is, of course, the love of God is what changed this man. From being the kind of guy that he was to being the apostle of love, it was that he came to know the love of God for himself, right? That's what he says in his own letters as well, that we love because he first loved us. Christ revealed to John the love of God for him as a sinner. John says in his writings that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for the sins of the world, right? And he came to realize that, man, I'm just as deserving of fire coming out of heaven than the Samaritans. And yet, and I didn't even realize that I was so blind and ambitious and selfish, but God actually sent his son into the world to die for me, to die for a person like me. And you get a sense of John's wonder in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, when he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the children of God. He's amazed by this, okay? It's not obvious. It's not like, of course Jesus chose me, right? Of course I would be his inner three. He's amazed. I can't even believe that I'm his child, let alone his, I was invited into the inner three. I can't even believe that I'm his child. I can't even believe that he did that for me. Behold what manner of love he was transformed when he, of course, realized his sinfulness, his unworthiness, the fact that he deserved death, and the fact that God amazingly loved him and saved him through Christ. And when John writes his gospel, he writes it for the purpose that others too might believe in Jesus, understand who he is, understand his love, and also be transformed. That's what John's purpose is all about. And lastly this morning, I'd like to talk about one of the most interesting and important features of the Gospel of John that we need to keep in mind as we go through our series. And that is this. The relative obscurity of the Gospel of John. Now how many know what I'm talking about when I say the relative obscurity of the Gospel of John? How many of you have noticed that one of the features of the Gospel of John and of Jesus' teaching in particular 
is a kind of obscurity of words. Have you noticed that? Why did you answer that way, Jesus, right? They asked you a question, you kind of went, I don't even know if you answered the question, right? Have you ever read the Gospel of John, kind of scratched your head at what Jesus said? I don't get what he's saying. It's sort of hard to understand. And you'll notice throughout the Gospel of John, lots of people in Jesus' own day who were standing there listening to him face to face, they said, we don't know what you're talking about, right? We don't get you. What do you mean? You will seek me and you will not find me and where I am you cannot come. Does anyone scratch their head about that at all, right? You will seek me and you will not find me and where I am you cannot come. And they even said, where's he going to go? Is he going to kill himself? Is he going to go to the Gentiles? We don't know what he's talking about. He wasn't super clear. When Jesus was in Jerusalem arguing with the Pharisees, there was kind of an obscurity about what he was saying. And it can be hard to understand what Jesus means. And you know, for this very reason, early on and throughout the ages, and even today, the Gospel of John is used by heretics. It's used by cults. It was used by the Gnostics in the second century to argue their perspective because there's material here that's ambiguous enough that anyone can come along and say, this is what he means, this is what he means. And his words can be interpreted in different ways depending upon what you bring to the text. That's a really important point I'd like to make clear. Depending upon your understanding of the background of these words, your position, your understanding of other things, and you bring these to the text, it can be interpreted in different ways. Let me give you an example. John 2.19, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it again. Jesus says this. Now, at the time when he said it, the disciples themselves didn't even understand what he was talking about, nor did the Pharisee. The Pharisee says, what do you mean it's taken 46 years to build this temple? And, the, and John even says, the, we disciples didn't even get what he was saying until later, when he rose from the dead. Then we understood, right? So depending on their position and their vantage point, what is obscure becomes clear. And as Christians, we know what he's talking about. He's talking about a temple of his body. They didn't know at the time. That's because of what we are bringing to the text, our vantage point. Or in chapter 4, verse 10, when he's talking to the Samaritan woman, you would ask him, he would give you living water. She doesn't get it, right? She's like, where are you going to get it? How are you going to draw water? You don't even have a bucket, you know? She doesn't know what he's talking about. We do because of our vantage point. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. If anyone does not eat my flesh and drink my blood, he has no life in him. And what did the Jews do at that point? Did they say, oh, he's talking about his sacrifice on the cross for the sins of the world, right? We need to believe. No, they, they said, this guy, what is he preaching, cannibalism? It's obscure. It's not clear. Jesus isn't just speaking super clearly. And it depends on your position whether you'll understand it or whether you don't. As we read on in the Gospel of John, or as we gain more understanding of the, of the context of his words, of the background of his words, of other issues that we need to understand in order to understand his words, what, becomes, what is obscure becomes less obscure. That's why I call it relative obscurity. It's not obscure to everybody, but it is obscure to many until you have that proper understanding. And here's a crucial point. 
I'd like us to keep in mind as we go through the series, that the Gospel of John, like the parables of Jesus, are intentionally, relatively obscure. Okay? I mean, the parables, there's statements in the synopsis that says, Jesus intentionally spoke in parables and not clearly, so people would be confused. Right? It says that. And unto you it is given to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Right? There's an intentionality in his obscurity. We might get frustrated and say, why are you talking like that? Just tell them you're going to die on the cross for the sins of the world. Stop making them think that you're preaching cannibalism, right? But he intentionally did that. He meant for it to be relatively obscure, and he intended for it to be obscure for those who didn't have understanding nor the humility to gain understanding and to learn. And Jesus intends for his words to be transparent and clear to those who have understanding or the humility to gain the needed understanding in order to understand what he's talking about. You'll notice that that's what happened with the the apostles when he was preaching the cannibal message. They didn't know what he was talking about either, but they wouldn't leave, right? Many people deserted him at that point. But the the apostles said, we can't leave. You have the words of eternal life. We don't know what you're talking about, but we know you're the Son of God, and we know there's something here, and we're going to stick with it. And they came to understand, didn't they? Jesus spoke this way intentionally to ward off those who would not patiently and humbly learn from him, but who would quickly fill in their own meaning into his words. That's what we can do here with his words. We can read them and we can quickly just jump to conclusions, fill in our, oh, of course he means this. Of course he means that. What else could he mean? And we're speaking from our own background and from our own position, from our own understanding. You know what happens when we do that? When we quickly just fill in the meaning? We're listening to ourselves. We're just listening to ourselves. We're just hearing ourselves talk again. And we're not hearing the words of God. And you know, brothers and sisters, this hasty filling in of meaning is not just isolated to the Gospel of John. This is how most people read the Bible. Okay? You ever met somebody who says they've read the Bible cover to cover and they're not a Christian? They think the Bible is just a bunch of rules and they think we Christians who say salvation is by grace through faith are just crazy, right? You know why they think that? Yeah, they've read the Bible, because, but they've read the Bible not in any patient and humble way seeking to learn, but they've read the Bible, they've approached the Bible and say, I already know everything there is to know about religion. I already know everything there is to know about God. I already know how relationship with God works, and I'm just going to go to the Bible and just find it there. And you read something and just assume, bam, I, it must mean this, it must mean that. And you just listen to yourself talk in the words of the Bible. And this feature of relative obscurity is extremely powerful because it calls us to patience, to listening, to reflection, to humility. It is, in fact, a demonstration of God's wisdom that he wrote it this way. It's God's way of separating his people from those who are not his people. So I can't stress this enough as we begin this series. I'm asking all of us, as we look at the Gospel of John, to not assume you understand what Jesus is talking about, to not hastily jump to preconceived conclusions, 
But if you don't get something, just to leave it and wait and just tell yourself, I don't have the background to understand this yet. I'm not in the right vantage point to get this yet. I'm just going to be patient and learn. As we discover the background and gain more knowledge, it will become clear. So in conclusion this morning, as Christians, much of the Gospel of John is already clear to us due to the position that we have now in the 21st century and all the knowledge we've gained through studying the Bible. We have an understanding of what Jesus of many of the things Jesus is talking about. In fact, this is why we're Christians, because we do have an understanding of what Jesus is talking about. For us as Christians, the Gospel of John isn't an obscure and opaque book. We have believed in Jesus, right? John says, my purpose in writing all this stuff is that you might believe and have life in his name, and if we're Christians, then we must have some understanding of what John is saying, right? And we do believe. And as I've mentioned, we understand that when Jesus was talking about eating his flesh and blood, he was talking about giving his body and his blood as a sacrifice for our sins on the cross to be spiritual food for us. That is, we need that to live. I'm dying without that. Just like a person dies without food, I'm dying without his sacrifice. His sacrifice is a provision for us as sinners who deserve damnation. It's a provision for our salvation. And by And to eat, we believe. And by believing, we live. And this morning as we take communion, this is what we're remembering. These obscure words have become clear. And we're remembering that the Son of God came into the world to give his life as an atonement for our sins so that we could be saved and to reveal to us the amazing, surprising love of God. As we think about his love, we'll be transformed like John was. So let's praise God for the gift of his son together and praise God for the gift of his word that tells us about his son. Without his word, we wouldn't even know any of this. And let's give thanks that it is through his word and hearing his word and believing his word that we come to know who God is and that we receive eternal life. Let's pray together. Please stand with me. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word that you've spoken and that we can hear you whenever we want. We don't need to lock ourselves in a closet for three months to try to hear your voice. Thank you that you've spoken to us and you've revealed yourself ultimately through Jesus. And Lord, I just commit this series on the Gospel of John to you. Many things are still obscure. We pray that as we study it together, you would reveal to us more and more the glory glory of your Son, the glory of yourself, the glory of your truth, the wonders of your grace. We thank you so much for what we already understand. And Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper, we thank you for your sacrifice for us that has given us the hope that we share and that we enjoy. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.